all today? Good, 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 good. Well, I want to start with two metaphors as we think about the upside-down kingdom this morning. Now, one I've already mentioned, or rather, it's been mentioned many times on those wonderful stories of uh, love and the things that we gave up for love. And I do remember the first time uh, we had that experience of that in my generation, in my family. Uh, My brother went off to university, and in his first term, he fell in love. And uh, as news of this emerged, he spoke first to my sister. Uh, I spoke to my sister then on the phone, and she, uh, we were talking about West Ham, and she said to me, Tom, I need to warn you. I don't think Phil's interested in West Ham anymore. <laughs> and that was the first sign that something had changed. Um, there we go. Now, I'm sure there's worse things to give up than guaranteed misery every Saturday afternoon. Uh, especially last-minute winners like Manchester United were uh, dependent on yesterday. Uh, But I appreciate uh, Tim's reference to uh, beating West Ham as somehow an upside-down kingdom. I thought that was normal, Tim, but there we go. Anyway, enough about football. That's the first metaphor, then, love and the things that we give up. The second is triggered by the physical context in which uh, Jesus delivered the teaching that we've heard, or we're about to hear read, um, as well as that that we look at the next few weeks. And that is mountains. Matthew's version, of course, is called the Sermon on the Mount, as we'll hear. Luke's version is delivered on a mountain plateau, almost certainly the same occasion, even if some of Matthew's material is missed out. And mountains had two main connotations for Jews of their day. One was the presence of God and his word. Of course, most famously, Moses up a mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. And the other was revolutionaries hiding in the mountains to escape detection and gathering their followers there to hear their agenda for change. And I want us to have both in mind as we listen to the passage now. So we don't miss the full significance of Jesus' words and what he's saying. For these are no mere platitudes, but they are spiritual and societal dynamite, turning the religious and cultural assumptions of their day completely upside down. His revolution, Jesus' revolution, went far beyond the scope of any other revolutionary leader. And unlike others, he reached down to the heart of the problem of the world, the problem of the human heart. So let's listen with hearts and ears open now as Bob reads the passage. And it's uh, from Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, starting to read from verse 17. Jesus went down with the apostles and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. 
those troubled by impure spirits were cured. And the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your reward, your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bob. So, as we've heard, the upside-down kingdom. Upside because it reverses so much of how we naturally think. And I've got two aspects of that upside-down kingdom that I want to talk to us uh, about today. First, uh, they both begin with P. The first is the pattern of thinking and acting that Jesus is presenting. And the second, and far more briefly, is the power to deliver it, the motivation to live it out. So first, the pattern, which I think, um, I have to say, uh, we need to understand as operating on both the physical and spiritual levels. And I said the same thing two weeks ago. For whilst Luke emphasizes the physical, Matthew's version, as well as Jesus' subsequent teaching, clearly broadens it out. And the physical aspect is most definitely astonishing stuff in itself. Blessed are you who are poor, Jesus said. And surely the reaction of those listening must have been, really? Who wants to be poor? Likewise, blessed are you who hunger now, ditto. Then there's blessed are you who weep now. A slightly wider focus, but surely equally unattractive. As of course is blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Though this last one does at least point us to the clear spiritual element of all of this. For Jesus here is really talking about one set of people. Yes, those who are impoverished, as 80% roughly of Israel's population were at the time. But there were also those who were followers of Jesus and experiencing heightened suffering because of their faith. And that's why the other half of the statements can make sense. For Jesus isn't proclaiming some sort of first uh, century foreshadowing of communism in the sense of an economic revolution for the whole of society. Rather, he's contrasting the poverty of his followers 
with what they are going to receive. And just to emphasize that, let's hear then once more those promises of what they will receive that he declared. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Whilst, of course, the hated and the excluded and the insulted should rejoice and leap with joy, because great is their reward in heaven. So let's just state explicitly what should already be obvious then in what Jesus is saying which is they are blessed because the things they are gaining are better, are greater than what they don't have. And this is our series in a nutshell, actually, isn't it? Tim uh, sort of introduced it again a bit earlier. And that theme of the series is this. What Jesus offers is better than anything the world can offer. Whether we have those things or not. The question is, are we willing to receive and enjoy them fully? Or are we missing out on the blessings of our faith? That's what I'm unpacking today as well. And it's here that we should acknowledge that the poor and the needy have one big advantage over the rich and comfortable. And it relates to what I said last time I preached which is that they know their need. For nothing they're experiencing at the moment is satisfying them. So of course they look for something more. Whereas the big danger for the rich and comfortable, which includes probably all of us, is that superficially at least, it seems that something is. And this is the danger of idols, which can affect us all. For idols are the things that we look to for sustenance and fulfillment and for blessing and peace and security instead of God. And idols can become even more dangerous the more that we have. Remember the answer of John D. Rockefeller. You might know this quote. One of the richest people on earth at the end of the 19th century. And he was asked, how much money is enough money? And the answer he gave was just a little bit more. And that's something that's true of every idol that we're beholden to. They never really satisfy us. And yet the more that they take over our lives, often because the more that we have, the harder it is to give those idols up. And yet it's exactly that freedom that Jesus is offering, not freedom from our needs being met. For as we're here later in the term, He said, seek first the kingdom and all these things, all the things you need will be given to you as well because our heavenly father knows that we need them. But it's freedom from preoccupation, from distraction and from that absolute compulsion to have more of those things that actually don't bring us the joy and peace that we crave. And to set us free from those things so that we're able to, and attentive enough to receive of all, all of what actually does satisfy us through Jesus. So does that mean that then that we 
don't work to tackle poverty wherever we find it? Of course not. So many of the great social reformers, as you'll know if you've studied British history at least, have been Christians for a reason, which is that God hates poverty, hates injustice, and longs that we would love each other by sharing our wealth. And that's why he will judge those who cause and reinforce oppression and injustice. And that's why, why Jesus said those woes in the second half of the passage that he mentioned. God will judge injustice, and Roddy prayed for that too. But equally, the point Jesus is making in first talking about the poor and downtrodden and going first to those people in his ministry is that he wants to express God's love and respect and affirmation and his valuing of those whose society then, and still largely speaking, society today, completely looks down upon and ignores. So we're to do likewise. But we don't do that and address physical need to sell people the vision of the joys of materialism. We do it to show how the love and generosity and provision of God extends far beyond shelter, food, and drink. Vital those, those things are. As the 19th century evangelists understood and put it as they worked in tandem with the social reformers and the philanthropists of their day. You can't evangelize an empty stomach. But equally, you can't convert a man possessed until you first free him from whatever has him trapped. It's about freedom from poverty and freedom from captivity, whatever form that that takes. So what does living out these beatitudes look like? It's this, that we prize what the world looks down upon, what the world sees as pitiable, but which Jesus in this passage affirms. Yet not in the sense that we seek those things as such, but that we recognize their value if they come along. And some of those things, even if not literal physical poverty, surely will. Things like weakness, sacrifice, discomfort, grief, exclusion, mockery. All things our world hates and does everything it can to avoid. But the true Christian perspective, as taught by Jesus here in this passage, is that God can use them and meet with us in them and console us with the bigger picture, which is the strength, comfort, hope, joy, affirmation, inclusion, and love that we have in Jesus partially now and one day fully in heaven as well as the big, wonderful, loving family that we've been given in the Christian church, the best experience of community anyone can have. Now, in my life, compared to my siblings, romantic love had to wait. But the one thing, actually, my siblings always noticed and often commented upon was actually the wonderful community of friends that I had through my church. I lived with my brother for years and he often talked about it, how he wished that everyone could have that quality of friendship that I enjoyed. And those people who made such a difference to my life and my faith. And that leads me on then to that second 
aspect of the upside down kingdom, the power to live out those kingdom values, the motivation through that through which that revolution can be fulfilled. For we motivate each other, don't we? As the writer to the Hebrews put it, and let us consider how we may spur one another along towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. So that's the fellowship, the support of others. But I want to concentrate in this final point on a different motivation. The motivation of grace. For this is another key aspect of that upside-down kingdom theme that I've gone for today. Yet this power or motivation of grace is not the power of Jesus' example primarily, but it's the power of his gracious exchange. And this is such an important point to free us from the sense of burden and guilt that as Christians we can so easily feel. For we look at Jesus' example, don't we, and feel perhaps initially inspired. But very soon we start to feel guilty and burdened by our failure to meet those standards and perhaps a nagging conviction that we should. There's no joy in that and very soon very little motivation either. But that all changes when we realize that in fact, through what Jesus gave up, we have so enormously gained. And this relates to the respect, the status, the inclusion, love and affirmation from the world that otherwise we would be so terrified of losing. For Jesus gave up all those things. He became as weak as it was possible to be. He sacrificed everything for us, including even rejection and exclusion, not just from the world around him, but from his heavenly father himself. A reversal of everything he deserved and everything he was entitled to. For behind that upside-down kingdom is an upside-down king. As Philippians 2 reminds us, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, and of course, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Which in turn means... That God no longer looks on us as our sins deserve. And instead, he sees us as he sees Jesus. His perfect, spotless, pure, precious child. Which means we no longer need to strive to earn anyone else's acceptance or favor or inclusion or affirmation or seek status in their sight. We can let go of all that stuff. That pressure doesn't belong to us anymore for we have all those things through our creator god and secure in his love his forgiveness his affirmation and our status and inheritance in him we are free to give up anything else as those examples from the beginning of the service of responding to human love so helpfully illustrate And it's in the joy and security and assurance 
of those things, that we can join in with his mission and accept the costs of that mission and embrace the goals of that mission too, the power of a vision for all that that mission can achieve. For the revolution that Jesus brought was not just to reward the revolutionaries and all the more obvious Christian benefits that we get from joining in with Jesus. But it was also even to create a better future and a fairer and more loving future for everyone else too. As any historian would tell you, the impact that the spread of Christianity had on the fairness and the kindness of societies all over the Christian world was enormous. Everyone benefited from what the kingdom of Jesus would bring. And so it really was and really is a vision worth living for, worth sacrificing for, and as the martyrs have shown us, even worth dying for. A vision in which the poor are made rich, the sick are healed, the hungry are fed, and grief turns to joy, and in which the very purpose for which we were created, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, can be fulfilled. It's the hope for mankind, the hope for our friends and families, and the hope for our nation and community too. Let that vision captivate you. Let that vision inspire you and allow it to take its rightful place as the driving force and compass for your life. And knowing that you have the spirit of Jesus alongside you, walking with you every step of the way. That's the reality that we operate with as Christians. And it means the risks are worth it. The sacrifices are worth it for a devoted, servant-hearted follower of Jesus, led by the Spirit, will surely bear fruit. So what about you? Are you up for the mission and its vision? Are you up for the blessings? But are you also up for letting go of whatever concerns or comforts, distractions, or dependencies might get in the way. Well, what we're going to do now is respond. Respond to that message of freedom from captivity, of the hungry being fed, of all that we truly desire being offered us by Jesus. If we let go of the things that get in the way, and Stefan, if you can put on the screen now the slide, and you can see there two pathways. And the question is this, what is God asking you to sacrifice or give up for him? And the second, what is he asking you to take up or take on? Now, the answer might spring readily to mind. Or maybe we first just need to invite God to speak. But we're going to leave an opportunity now as the band comes up to engage with those questions. Now, you were given a piece of paper when you came in. You should uh, perhaps have a pen. If not, put your hand up and we can get you one. And as the band sing to us a song that reflects the heart of Jesus' message today, I invite you to think and then write down whatever it is that you want to let go of 
as you put these Beatitudes into practice. And whatever it is that you feel God is calling you to take up. And as a sign of offering your response of obedience to those things, you'll see just at the front of church, we've got a little table and uh, there's a basket on there. And I invite you to bring whatever it is God lays on your heart written down and place it in that basket 